This week, we have the holiday of Purim coming up. And what I wanted to do is give a, a primer, an overview of the holiday, the batch story, the history, the themes of the holidays, of the holiday, the midst of the holiday. And whenever you do this, I was telling my father recently, instead of a class on Sunday, it's uh, everything on Purim. So I said to him, it's not that I need to prepare what I need to say, it's I need to prepare what I need to not say. Because there's a lot to say in Purim, and if we try to say it all, we might be here until after Pesach. <laughs> so instead, what we're going to try to do is just give the highlights of Purim and try to pull the major themes and the the the, the uh, most important notes of the story, and and that'll give us a framework. Uh, my grandfather has a whole book that he wrote of his lectures on the holiday of Purim and Pesach, but the holidays of redemption that come now during this time. So obviously, we're we're not going to give them a full comprehensive, but we'll try to give an, an overview. And, uh, of course, the story of Purim is when the Jewish people are in Persia, and they're living under the Persian Empire, and they face a decree uh, of annihilation and extermination. And as we know, and we say during the Haggadah on Pesach, every generation there's at least one plot or two to try to destroy us. Some, some of them we know about, some of them we don't know about, but we're still standing thousands of years later. But this episode of Purim... It uh, was so significant in our history that it was instituted as a holiday from that point forward, going 2,300 years ago till today, that on the in the middle of the month of Adar, we celebrate this holiday. So the Jewish people are in Persia. Now, how did they end up in Persia? So I actually, uh, last week I gave a whole lecture on just how the Jewish people ended up in Persia. But just the highlights. We know the Jewish people, they Moshe dies, and they're on the doorstep of of Israel. And then Joshua takes over and they begin a conquest of the land. And that conquest takes many, many years. And even after they complete the conquest, there's still small pockets of resistance and rebellion. And that's going to last for hundreds of years. And finally, under the monarchy of David, they have complete sovereignty over the whole land. And they capture Jerusalem and Solomon builds his temple and things are really at their apex. And then, of course, things don't last, you know, the good times don't last forever. There's a schism, and there's a secession, and there's essentially a civil war. And then again, it's the north against the south, just in this time, the south one. Uh, and yeah, and, 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 it, but unlike the American civil war, this was a bloodless civil war. You have the northern tribes of Israel, they secede, and they form their country or their kingdom called the kingdom of Israel. The southern tribes, they form the kingdom of Judah. And that's the way it continues for hundreds of years. Come along the Assyrians, and they sweep in from the north, from Iraq, from Asia Minor, and they conquer and resettle the Jews of the northern kingdom of Israel. Thus the term, if you ever heard the term, the ten lost tribes, these refer to those ten northern tribes that were resettled by the Assyrians. Where they are, who knows? They're parts unknown. They tried to attack the, the southern kingdom of Judah. They laid siege, but it, it was it didn't it 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 uh, didn't go anywhere. So the southern kingdom of Judah survived. Over the next century, the Assyrians uh, they are removed from the world stage, and in their place we have the Babylonians, and the Babylonians, led by one of the most uh, gifted emperors and cruel emperors in history, Nebuchadnezzar, he conquers everything 
that the Assyrians previously had. And this is the theme. We know that there's these mega empires, conquer the whole world. They have, they seem, uh, completely dominant. Uh, but then very soon afterwards, another empire comes and takes over and becomes the new, uh, empire to rule all. So you have the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and then maybe the Byzantines. And so the Babylonians swoop in and they actually conquer Judah. Uh, but they don't really do anything that drastic until there's rebellion. And then there's several uh, – it happens incrementally. There's several revolts. There's a first revolt and there's a second revolt. And the first revolt, that leads to many Jews being led in exile to Babylon. Not all the Jews. The temples are destroyed. The monarchy is not ended. Jerusalem is not burned down to the ground. Uh, but many of the great leaders of the Jewish nation are brought into exile to Babylon. One of them is going to play a big part in our story, and that's Mordechai. Mordechai was one of the heads of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the judicial court, the supreme court of the nation, but really comprises the body of the of the Torah leaders of the people, which at the time uh, doubled in some ways as political leaders as well. So they're taken all the way to Babylon. And there's many, many such people who are the best and brightest, uh, 10,000 by the Jewish account, who are led into exile to Babylon. And the hope is, the hope of the conquerors is that, well, if you take away the leadership, it's going to not allow or it's going to mitigate the risk of future rebellion. However, 10 years later, the king Sith Kiyahu, Zedekiah, he makes the foolish uh, choice to rebel again. And this time, Nebuchadnezzar comes and lays siege to the city, uh, a two-year siege where there's hunger and starvation and devastation in the city. It's really bad. People are dying left, right, and center. Finally, they breach the walls. They pour in. They slaughter everyone they find. They set the temple aflame. They de- they destroy the 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 palace of, Jude- of Judah. They uh, kill uh, the princes, the king's sons, and they gouge out his eyes. And everyone's sent into exile. It's really the worst. The lowest point in, in the Jewish people's history is at the destruction of the first temple and the end of the first commonwealth. The Jewish people have entered the land 852 years prior. They had their ups and downs. They had their great leaders. They had their low points, but they always had some sort of presence in the land. Now all the Jews are led to cha- in chains to Babylon, and things really seem very desperate. Uh, but in Babylon, they kind of settle down, and they build houses and plant vineyards and, you know, it's it's not so hard for them to integrate because Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew and the Babylonians sort of let let them live, uh, a live and let live attitude and they build shuls, which are going to be like, consider the, the small temple. You know, you have a small temple of worship instead of the major temple of worship and there's hundreds of them and they have a pretty, it's pretty good. Things are pretty good. And in the interim, during those years between the first temple being destroyed and the second temple rebuilt, it's those 70 critical years that a lot is going to happen. Now, the prophet Isaiah had made a prediction that there's going to be 70 years of exile. And the, the, in, in Jewish parlance, or certainly in prophetic parlance, the term exile is always linked not just with the nation being in the land, but the nation being in the land and having a temple in Jerusalem as its, as its, as its centerpiece. 
So if you were to ask the prophets, are we in exile today? So we might say, how can we be in exile? Jewish people, after 800, uh, after 1813 years, will we have the land of Israel again? We have sovereignty. So maybe in our view, we'd say, well, we're back in the land. We've accomplished everything that we need to, needed to accomplish. But if you look at throughout Torah sources and throughout prophetic sources and throughout uh, Talmudic sources, it's very clear that in their eyes, being present in the land is insufficient. To actually have spiritual hegemony as well is really what matters. So until there's another temple built, if you ask the prophet Isaiah, we're still in exile. That's what he would say. But he makes a prediction. 70 years, that's the whole exile. That's not, you know, not bad. 70 years, it's basically a lifetime, but it's not an unfathomable length of time. You'll be out of the land. You'll be in, 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 in foreign land. You'll be scattered throughout the nations, but you'll come back and you'll have a second temple after 70 years. And this, during this 70 years, there's going to be many, many changes. So the most important change is the Jewish people are not living in Israel. And the Jewish people are living in Babylon. And they're living under somewhat tense conditions. But of course, you know, the Jews rise to the top as they do everywhere they are. They have uh, Nebuchadnezzar appoints many young Jews to be his advisors. He has a young man named Daniel, who's so talented at interpreting dreams and, and a very skillful advisor, he rises to the absolute top. But even Daniel, uh, he gets cast into the, uh, into the lion's den when he, uh, uh, he disobeys one of the commands of one of the kings. And Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah, the three heroes, uh, when they refuse to prostrate themselves before the uh, idol uh, depicting or the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, they get thrown in a fire. Uh, things really aren't that great, but relatively, they're okay. But during these 70 years, there's a, there's a change. And even though Nebuchadnezzar was on top of the world, and he really he was the undisputed king of the world, still... Very soon after he dies, the Babylonian Empire is going to be no more. There's going to be a coalition of Persians and Medes who are going to turn the uh, turn the chapter on Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and they're going to be the new world empire, and they're going to control all the lands of the Babylonians. So very soon after they, the Babylonians reach their height, they have their downfall, and the Persians and the Medes are going to control the world stage. Now, the Persians and the Medes, they have a very transcendental king uh, during this time. And his name is Cyrus, known as Cyrus the Great. And he is going to begin, he's going to make this famous proclamation that we read about in both Jewish sources and non-Jewish sources, uh, where he's going to announce, he's going to try to undo the legacy of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's legacy was tearing up the world map, conquering everyone, subjecting them to his will. Cyrus is going to be about undoing that. He's going to let the people go back. Everyone, every, every people, go back to your indigenous land. You can worship your own God. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to conform to what I want. And he's going to systematically try to dismantle the legacy of, of Nebuchadnezzar. And he even tells the Jews, go back to Israel. And everyone's like, wow, th- th- this is it. The prophecy of Isaiah is coming true. Go back to Israel. I'm going to give you the vessels of the temple. I'm going to give you troops 
to watch you along the way and go ahead. Knock yourself out. Go build a temple. I like uh, Full authority. And the leaders of the nation are very excited, of course. And they try to get a, a mass of, uh, of people to go back to Israel. And the majority of people say, you know what? I kind of like it here. I'm going to stay. And this is one of the great ironies is that when they went to Babylon, when they were led in chains, when they were sent into exile, it was the saddest day. And they're crying on the rivers of Babylon. What's going to be with us? How can we go to this foreign land? And then they're giving a, on a silver platter, go back to Israel. We'll guard you along the way. Well, here's the vessels of the temple. We'll send, uh, we'll send, uh, troops to make sure that you're secure and safe. Eh, I kind of like it here. It says, this is where my kids live. Why, why, why disrupt it? And there's, there's a great parallel, which is, it's so obvious that, uh, how many tears have our antecedents cried to go back to Jerusalem? Uh, just Jerusalem was a barren wasteland and there was no one living there and there was hostile elements. And now, you know, it's been almost exactly 70 years. We could go back to Israel and any Jew from all the world right away is granted the right to return. And yeah, we kind of like it here. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of pleasant here. It's really nice here. You know, why, why would we move there? You know, it's, it's the, it's the Middle East. It's far away. We're Americans. Uh, that's, that's, that's exactly what they did. You know, it's 50 years or so after we left. We settled down in Babylon, and we kind of liked it there. Uh, and yes, they were able to group a significant amount of people to go back to the land, but the vast majority of people opted to remain in Babylon. 42,000 or so under the leadership of Zerubbabel, they travel back to Israel, to Judea, and they begin building the next temple. And they lay the foundation stone, and it's a momentous event. Everyone's so excited. Crowds throng to go witness this historic event. And the old people who remember the first temple, they start crying. Because even though we're having a second temple, the second temple will pale in comparison uh, to the first temple. But still, it's not, it's not bad. We, we take it. Uh, the problem is, is that the construction gets halted. Because there's a group of people who have been there for several hundred years, known as the Samaritans or the Kuthites, and they are enemies of the Jews, and they they spot this hubbub of activity. The Jewish people are trying to rebuild the temple. We have to stop them, and they send a message back to Persia, back to Cyrus. Oh, these Jews, they want to rebel. They want to build this temple to oppose you. And he he believed what they said, and the construction was halted. Soon afterwards, Osiris dies, and according to Jewish tradition, his son is Ahasuerus. His son is the king who is going to be play a, a crucial role in the story of Purim. Now, who exactly he is? Is this Xerxes? Is this Xerxes one or Xerxes two or Xerxes thirteen? It's complicated, but we know there is a guy named Xerxes, and it's is Ahasuerus the same name as Xerxes? Uh, there's been books written about that, but simply put, we uh, understand that uh, after Cyrus dies, the next king is going to be the king who is going to be there in the Purim story, and the Book of Esther, ten chapters, details the whole story of Purim from the Jewish people's perspective. And this is included in the canon, the the the, 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 Jew, the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, the last entry, the last book to make the cutoff line 
when the, before the Tanakh was canonized is the book of Esther. It was only like 10 or 15 years later after the book of Esther was written that the, the uh, canon of the Tanakh was sealed. So no books that come afterwards are included in the 24 holy books of the Jewish nation. So it begins, this book begins with King Ahasuerosh. He's a few years into his reign and he makes a massive banquet. 180 days. They used to know how to celebrate back in the day. <laughs> now it's 180 maybe minutes is like the most we could fathom. I, after 180 minutes, three hours, you're done. You want to go home, right? Yeah, that's you're done. 180 days plus seven days. Why is he celebrating? Why is he so excited? What what is this momentous event that he's celebrating? So according to Jewish sources, what he's actually what he's actually celebrating is the fact that Isaiah's prophecy was debunked. In his calculation, the seventy years are over, and therefore the temple's not been rebuilt. And the Jewish people are now have not gone back in massive numbers to the land to Judea, and therefore it's never going to happen. Now, what, what is the root of the, this miscalculation? So the root of the miscalculation is that there were two junctures of the exile. There was the first exile. Like there were two revolts. The first revolt led to the beginning of the exile. But the second revolt actually led to the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the monarchy, really the final blow. Ahasuerus was counting from the first exile. And thus, 70 years later, it's really only 60 years since the temple has been destroyed. And thus, in his view, well, we're counting from the beginning of the exile, and therefore it's been 70 years, nothing's happened. And that's why we're going to have this massive celebration. But in truth, according to the Jewish uh, chronology, temple destroyed the year 422, second temple was rebuilt in the year 352, exactly 70 years later. And thus, Isaiah was spot on. Uh, but he, it's probably the year 360 or so, 361, it's, it's, or maybe 363, something around that, around that time period. He is sure that it's over and he wants to celebrate and he does it in, uh, in, uh, in lavish fashion. 180 days of celebration plus seven days. And the very first chapter really sets the tone for what's going to be. His heart is gladdened with wine, the words of the book. And he wants to show off his wife. Now, who is his wife? His wife is Vashti. And Vashti is one of the villains of the story, but her pedigree is important because it does show, it does show Ahasuerus' priorities and his, his attitude. Vashti is the daughter of Belshazzar. She's the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus came, Cyrus is the Persian, and he came and he destroyed the Babylonians. But there is one remaining daughter of the Babylonians that wasn't killed in this takeover, in this coup, and that's Vashti. And Ahasuerosh, he decides, I'm going to marry her. I'm going to build alliances. I'm going to go back to the ways of the Babylonians. And we see like a departure. Cyrus says, we're going to change away from the from Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to chart a new path. This is the Persian Empire, not the Babylonian Empire. And Ahasuerosh, he says, you know what, we're going to go back. And he marries Vashti, and he goes back to some of the policies of the Babylonians, some of these strong arm policies. So she's also a villain. 
And in the Midrasha sources, we get more descriptions of how she would torment uh, her underlings. But she doesn't really stand a chance in the story because in the very first chapter of the book, Ahasuerus, she's drunk, and he calls her to come in front of everyone wearing nothing but a crown. And uh, understandably, she refuses. And Ahasuerus, in a drunken rage, he can't believe that he was rebuffed. And he consults his advisors and they say, well, how could such a thing? She's besmirching. She's not honoring her husband. What's going to be? All the women will say, we're going to we're gonna follow her lead. She's going to be the first feminist. She's the one who's going to stand up to her husband and everyone's going to follow. We're all going to suffer. You have to say, we're done with her. He's like, okay, signs off on that. And uh, Avashti is killed and now he is bereft of a queen. And that's the beginning of the story. In chapter two, he he's kind of sad. He misses her. And he's a little lonely. And this massive search committee is undertaken to find a replacement. And they begin uh, scouting throughout the lands. And the lands essentially cover the whole world. The most beautiful woman we have to find to be a candidate for replacing Vashti and becoming the next queen. And they sent out teams to select and really snatch, kidnap women and you would imagine the women will, would want to participate. But if you read the whole chapter two, it's actually almost a death sentence to participate in this beauty contest because you would spend 12 months getting ready for your, for your audience with the game. 12 months. And then you spend one night there. If he likes you, you may be made the queen. But if he doesn't like you, you're put in his harem and you're guarded forever. You can never marry anyone else in the world because you spent a night with the queen, with the king. So unless you're very lucky and you become the queen, which we don't know how lucky that even is, given the legacy uh, and the aftermath of the first queen. But it's, it, you know, otherwise you really get put in jail, essentially, unless the king calls you, says, I want her back. You're just held in a holding cell forever. And there is a Jewish girl who is selected. And her name is Esther, of course. And she is a a, an orphan, and as you might imagine, there's probably a lot of Jewish orphans given the recent history, and she's adopted by her uncle, Mordechai, and the search committee knocks on the door and says, okay, we need this girl. She's really beautiful. She's going to be a candidate. And what's going to be with Esther? What's going to be? So Mordechai gives her a piece of advice. He says, listen, the Almighty's with you. One piece of advice, don't reveal your identity. Don't tell them a, that you're Jewish, according to some opinions. B, don't tell them that you're a direct descendant of King Saul, the first king of Israel. Esther's a direct descendant of King Saul. Therefore, she has royalty within her. And the reason why Mordechai did not want her to reveal that, according to some opinions, is because that would make her a better candidate for queen. For a nice Jewish girl, to be the queen, to be in, in the palace of Persia, it's not the right place for her. And therefore, to reduce her chances of being selected, he tells her, don't tell them that you're a direct descendant of a king. As the story would have it, Esther is right away, she overwhelms Ahasuerus. She's so wowed by her, and he right away selects her to replace Vashti. And Esther's the queen. And she refuses to tell him anything about her back, her back, uh, her background, her backstory. He doesn't tell him anything about. That. She doesn't tell him anything about that. 
And okay, well, what's going to be? We don't know what's going to be yet. But this is an example. If you read the structure of the story, the solution to the problem that's going to ensue is in place before the problem even surfaces. Because chapter three, we meet Haman. And Haman has a whole elaborate plan to kill every Jew in the empire. And we don't know that yet, reading chapter two. But chapter two, we see already that the Almighty says, okay, I'm going to give you the remedy before the malady. And again, chapter two ends with Mordechai foiling an assassination attempt against the king. Uh, the king has two, two of his, uh, people in his, in his palace, two of his, his servants. They are hatching a plan to assassinate Achashverosh. Mordechai hears it, he tells the king, and these two people are hung. Now, the Talmud gives us a little bit more deeper insight in the story. Mordechai, after all, he is a member of the Sanhedrin, of the high court of, of the Jewish nation. One of the requirements to be part of the Sanhedrin is to be fluent in all 70 languages. That's one of the requirements. Now, these two people, Bitsan and Seresh, these two uh, servants of, of Ahasuerus, they were conversing in, I don't know, Flemish, in, in their, their native tongue. <coughs> and, they're hat- and they're hatching this whole elaborate plan to assassinate Ahasuerus. And Mordechai hears it, and they assume, what does this old Jew know anything about what we're talking about? We could talk freely around him. He understands every word they say, and he goes, reveals the plot to Ahasuerus, and the threat is is removed. But these two stories, Esther being nominated, Mordechai foiling the assassination attempt, are going to play a big role at the end of the story. Chapter 3 really kind of takes a turn. Haman, he is a an heir to Amalek. Amalek is the nation that was brazen to attack the Jewish people after the Jewish people left Egypt between the splitting of the sea and, and Mount Sinai. Jewish people are at the peak of their powers. They've just left Egypt. Ten miraculous plagues. They were surrounded by the enemy and they split, God split the sea for them. And now they're eating manna every day. Really, they're at their, at their acme right now. And what happens? There's only one nation that says, you know what? We're going to attack. And that's Amalek. And Amalek says, the way it's described in, in the, in the Midrashic sources, there was a piping hot bath. And no one was willing to walk into it. Because essentially it means you're killing yourself. And there was one person that says, I'm going to jump and I don't care. And that's Amalek. Amalek says, I don't care that there's danger. I'm a kamikaze. I'm just going to attack, even if it means I'm going to die. And in Jewish philosophy, Amalek is the antithesis of the Jewish nation. Everything that we stand for, they stand for the opposite. And they're dead set on dismantling and eradicating us. Comes along Haman. Haman is Ha'agadi. Agad was the king of Amalek. He's a descendant of Amalek. And he is nominated to be the prime minister. And it's one of those instances in history that the worst candidate for the job actually is given all the reins. And like you wonder, like how, how did Germ- how did the Germans elect Hitler? Like they, they knew this guy was a madman. And he spelled it out for 15 years before he was elected. And somehow conditions were such that he was elected. 
and people nominate. Same thing here. Uh, this the Hitler of his time, Haman. He now has all the power, and he's given free reign to do everything. Only Achashverosh, who is so consumed with his hedonism, only he is above him. And one of the things that he institutes right away is that everyone needs to bow down before him. Uh, Haman says, wherever I walk, I want everyone to prostrate themselves before me. And everyone obeyed because uh, that that requirement was in pain and death with the exception of Mordechai. Mordechai, after all, he is from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin was not born when Jacob and Esau reunited in Genesis. After Jacob has 11 children, he travels back to Israel and he meets Haman. I'm sorry, he meets Esau along the way. And Jacob and Jacob's four wives and Jacob's 11 sons all bow down before Esau. But there's one son that hasn't been born yet, and that's Benjamin. And Mordechai, we're told, is a descendant of Benjamin. And therefore, he was the one who had the temerity and the fortitude to say, I'm not doing it. The rest of the Jews, because their ancestors, <laughs> because their ancestors had capitulated and bowed down to Esau, they didn't have the ability to resist bowing down to Haman. Whereas Mordechai, who was from the tribe of Benjamin, he didn't, he didn't kneel, he didn't bow nothing. And of course, Haman, who was so consumed with honor, he could not let this fly. And he tells him, says, I, I, all the honor of the world is not worth it for me because Mordechai is not bowing down. I could kill him, but it's beneath me to just kill Mordechai. It's beneath me. I, I'm going to take the, I'm going to, I'm going to find the whole nation, every single Jew, and I'm going to kill them all. Now, how does he determine how to go about this? This is really an interesting uh, theme of the holiday. What's the plan? So we have to kill them, but we have to do it all in one day. But which day? So he takes out his dice and he starts throwing dice. And he's trying to determine which day is most suitable for this genocide. And he finds that the day that's best is based upon the dice is the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And it's interesting. The reason why the holiday is called Purim, because the word Pur means a lottery or a dice. And the reason why the whole holiday is named after this episode in the story where Haman was determining which day to set as the day of genocide and he used this method. He used a just random, let's throw a dice and we'll find out that way and why we'll see in a little bit. So that's his plan. We're going to kill all the Jews on this day. Well, he has to get Achashverosh to sign off on it. So he goes to Achashverosh and says, okay, there's this one nation and they're scattered and you don't really need them. We could just kill them. But you know what? I'm going to give you a bribe because after all, they pay taxes and there's a loss of tax revenue. I'll pay it all from my own coffers. I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver. Achashverosh says to him, you know what? Keep the money. And we'll go ahead with the plan. And he signs off and they send couriers throughout all 127 countries uh, and regions, each region according to its language, that on this day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the 13th day of Adar, all Jews have no police protection. Do with them whatever you want. They are in your hands. It's signed with the signet of 
king. You can never change it. And that's what's going to happen. And this is several months out. And a chapter four descends into mourning. Everyone, all the Jews everywhere start mourning. They put on the sackcloths and they just cry and they try to repent. What's going to be with us? And we know like the, the date is swiftly arriving and our nation is going to face extermination. That's what's going to happen. And Mordechai, he sends a message to Esther. And he tells her to do something. You're, you're a queen. Go lobby your husband to stop this madness. And she says, well, if I go to him and I'm not invited, I'm going to die. That's the rules. You have to be invited. If you're invited, you're okay. If you're not invited, you're not okay. I wasn't invited for 30 days. If I go to him, he'll just kill me. So Mordechai responds. I want to read this, uh, these string of, of verses in chapter four. So they're having this communication back and forth through an intermediary, through a messenger. They related Esther's words to Mordechai. Then Mordechai said to reply to Esther, do not imagine in your soul that you b- will be able to escape in the king's palace any more than the rest of the Jews. If you think you have some sort of immunity and you're, you're, you'll be fine as long as you're in the, <coughs> As long as you're in the palace, it's not true. For if you persist in keeping silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another place. This is what he's telling him. The Jews will survive. The question is, will you be the one to do it or will someone else be the one to do it? If you're quiet, relief will come from a different place while you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether it was just for such a time as this that you attained the royal position. He's telling her, the only reason why God ensured that you became queen is because of this. You have the opportunity to be the one to save the Jews. If you don't save the Jews, someone else will, but you will be destroyed. Make your choice. So she agrees, provided to go to Ahasuerus's, uh, to, to, his, uh, to his palace and to visit him, uninvited, provided that the Jewish nation fasts for three days beforehand. She's going to fast, they're going to fast, and hopefully with fast and prayer will help to ensure that this project, this venture is successful. She goes to Ahasuerus, he extends the uh, the royal scepter, she's okay for the time being. What do you need? Oh, I want to give you, I want to make a party, I want to make a feast. She knows exactly how to get the, the fastest way into a man's heart, uh, is through his stomach uh, or through his chest. And so she tells him, we're going to invite you to a party, just you and me and Haman. Fantastic. And and then by the party, I'll tell you what I really want. They have this massive party. Haman's invited. He's on top of the world. By the party, Ahasuerus asks Esther, okay, what do you want? You know what? I really want another party. We'll have another feast tomorrow. Just you and Haman. And now Haman is really on top of the world. He's on top of the world. The only person that Esther invited, with the exception of her husband, is me. I'm invincible. As he's walking back home, he sees Haman, he sees Mordechai, and Mordechai's not bowing down to him. And it riles him up. He's consumed with anger, but he holds himself back. He gets home. He tells his wife about everything that happens. I'm on top of the world, but nothing is worth anything for me because every time I see Mordechai, she says, okay, what's your problem? Build gallows and hang him. Hang him. What's the problem? So he builds this massive gallows and he goes over to uh, he goes over to Ahasuerus and he tells him, okay, we're going to have to build gallows. But on the way, in the interim, that night, 
Ahasuerus have a hard time falling asleep. And he's twisting and turning and he's all worried and he feels so awkward. What's happening? Esther's inviting Haman. Is there some sort of palace two going on over here? Who's trying to get me? He gets all paranoid and he can't sleep. And he calls over the official uh, records keeper, the archives collector of the nation. He says, someone, someone wants to kill me and I don't know who it is. There's someone who did me a favor and I don't remember who it was. I want you to find that guy. So he finds, he's looking through the, uh, the royal archives and he finds Mordechai. Mordechai saved the king. Mordechai revealed the plot of the assassination. Okay, well, what, what reward was he given? Was he given lots of gold? Was he given great honors? Actually, he was given nothing. Okay, well, I have to find a way to pay him back for what he did. Meanwhile, Haman's traveling to go ask permission to have Mordechai hung. He knocks on the door and Achishurish invites him in. And Achishurish says, okay, before you tell me anything, I have a question for you. What should happen if there's someone that, that the king really wants the reward, what should happen to him? So Haman's like, okay, obviously he's talking about me. Obviously. Who, who else could the king possibly be referring to? It must be he's talking about me. He says, well, such a person, they have to take the horse that the king rode on and they have to take the king's garments and they have to take the king's crown, everything. And the king's most important advisor has to lead him through the street and announce so shall be done to the person who the king wants to honor. It's like, okay, good idea. I love the suggestion. Okay, so I'm going to go to Mordechai. And because you're the king's highest advisor, I want you to take him and lead him through the streets on my horse, in my royal garments, with my crown. So faced with no choice, he travels to his enemy, his nemesis, Mordechai. And he takes him and says, okay, I'm here to um, accord you some honor. And they parade him through the streets of the city. And Haman is there. And he is leading the horse like some peasant. And Mordechai is there in his splendor with the crown of the king, with the king's royal garments. And uh, to add insult to injury or injury to insult, uh, we're told it's hinted to in the, in the text of, the, um, of chapter 6 or chapter 7, chapter 6. Uh, of the book, it's hinted that actually uh, Haman becomes, uh, he starts mourning. And according to, uh, the Midrash explains to us what happened. What happened was his daughter, Haman's, Haman's daughter, was watching this massive procession from afar. And she sees this, this beautiful, resplendent rider of this amazing horse with a whole procession behind him. And some Nebuch guy, some poor guy having to lead him. So he's like, okay, must be that our father Haman is finally giving the last insult to, to Mordechai, Mordechai is being forced to lead him. And then it gets a little closer and she says, no, 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 it's the opposite. Haman is leading the horse and Mordechai is riding it. So she gets so overwhelmed, she jumps off the, uh, she jumps off the uh, roof and she dies. That's according to the Midrash. And there, therefore, Haman is not only insulted by this whole story, but his daughter dies as well. And the next day, and, and oh, and he gets home and he hasn't, and he's all sweaty from leading this, this trip. And he needs to take a shower. But no, it's time for the second banquet. And the king's people come and say, okay, you got to go right now, right now, right now. So he has to go there. He's still disheveled from this experience. And he has to go to this palace. And at this amazing banquet number two, Ahasuerus asks Esther, 
okay, what do you really want? He says, well, I just, I just want my life. Just my life and the life of my family. So what are you talking about? Like, well, someone wants to kill me and my family and everyone I know. Who is this person? Well, right over here, Haman, this evil person. And then Achashverosh doesn't know what to do. He throws aside for a little walk and someone points out to him. He says, oh, you see those gallows that are 50 cubits uh, tall? Actually, Haman just erected those gallows to Hain Mordechai, the hero who saved your life. So in an instant, Achashverosh says, you know what? We're going to hang Haman on those very same gallows. And chapter 8, really, the story turns. Mordechai is installed as prime minister. Haman is hung. The decree is amended. It wasn't changed. It was amended that the 13th day of the month of Adar should not be a day where the Jews are vulnerable to attack. Rather, all the enemies of the Jews are vulnerable to attack. No one should touch the Jews, but the Jews have the right to do whatever they want with all the anti-Semites who want to kill them. And we're told the numbers, the Jews killed their enemies in Shushan, in the city of the capital city. They took the 10 sons of Haman and they hunted them and they killed all their enemies in all the lands for several days. And the following day, the day after all the anti-Semites have been killed, Finally, there was peace and quiet and serenity amongst the Jewish people, knowing that all those who wish them ill are no longer. And as such, they made a ruling that on the day after, so the 14th day of Adar, the day when the Jews finally got a respite from their enemies, is a day of celebration of this great miracle, a day in which we read the Megillah, read the story written by the very people who experienced it, a day that we have a great great celebration, a great banquet, a day that we have gifts that we give to other people and gifts that we give to poor people. Thus concludes the book of Esther. So what are some of the themes of the holiday? So first of all, the actual name of the book of Esther is not called the book of Esther, it's called the scroll of Esther, which in Hebrew is the Megillat Esther. Medila and Esther. And now those words can simply mean the scroll of Esther, the person Esther. However, in Hebrew, the word Medila or Dilui means revealing. And Esther means hidden. Thus, almost in the name of the very book that we read twice on Purim, you have the one of the major themes of the, of the holiday, and that is to reveal that that is hidden. If you look at every one of the 24 books, with the exception of the book of Esther, the name of God appears throughout it. There's one book of the 24 books of the Jewish Bible, the Jewish canon, that the name of God does not appear. However, you could actually find many times where the names of God is hinted in the book of Esther, where it has, let's say, the first letter of Four words are the names of God or the last letter of four successive words are the name of God or if you count this amount of, uh, uh, a, a, um, if you count this amount of, le- of, of letters, you find the names of God in, in, in these intervals. It's hidden throughout the, throughout the book to the, na- the names of God, but not, it's not, it's not explicit. This is one of the themes of the holiday. That every single aspect of the story could have been random. It could have been random that 
that Ahasuerus killed Vashti and that he selected Esther and that Mordechai happened to hear the story and that everything could have been random. But pieced together, we're trying to find God's uh, God's intervening hand in the story that is really not supernatural. You know, we have many stories of salvation, but primarily we have, of course, the Exodus. And the Exodus, there's miracles there ever-present and miracles that are called revealed miracles. You don't need to be... Someone who ruminates very hard to find that splitting the sea is a miracle of God. But to read this story, you have to work hard. And the objective of the holiday, one of the themes that we try to reach in the holiday of Pesach is to recognize that God revealed himself in the past. But on Purim, it's even more powerful to a degree because Purim, we talk about God revealing himself, so to speak, and doing miracles in the present in a hidden way. Not just to look at revealed miracles of the past, but in hidden miracles in the present. And that's why, for example, one of the Talmud says that every time it says the word Hamelach, which means the king, in the book of Esther, it's referring to God. But if you read the actual text, it seems like it's referring, the only king is mentioned is Ahasuerus, the king. But Talmud says whenever it says the word Hamelach, the king, it's referring to God. Whenever it says Hamelach Ahasuerus, the king Ahasuerus is referring to Ahasuerus. And my wife told me uh, yesterday that she had a project in school that had to go through every single time it says the word Hamelach, the king, in the book of Esther and explain why it's referring to God. And every time it says Hamelach HaChashverosh, the king HaChashverosh, and explain why it cannot be referring to God, which seems like it was a very difficult uh, project. But that's the idea. The idea is to bring out the hidden aspects of where God's involved in our lives. I always, I always say this, you know, how many times a day does your heart pump blood to your whole body. How many times a day? It's about 90,000 times. It's an incredible amount of times. Of course, it depends on your cardio or whatever. <laughs> it depends on your blood pressure. And and do we do we appreciate that? Is that a miracle? Is that not a miracle? Well, let's figure it out. You have a more comprehensive network of pipes in your body and canals in your body than the entire traffic infrastructure of the world. So basically, if your blood is being pumped everywhere, it's equivalent of the entire world not having traffic ever because if there is traffic if there is a jam you might die because of a blood clot so we say that's that's a miracle now it's a, it's not is it, is it a revealed miracle or is it a hidden miracle it's a hidden miracle because we take it for granted it's nature it, it could it could be random we don't see anything that's nature suspending in fact it's it is nature itself and therefore Part of the themes of this holiday is to try to find instances where God is involved. So what happens? What's the name of the holiday? The name of the holiday is the Purim. Purim is is Amalek's ideal where God doesn't exist. And therefore, everything's random. And therefore, the way Haman wants to destroy the Jewish people is specifically by doing an act of randomness. By saying, we're throwing the dice and we're finding out which day is most apt. Why? Random. It's a random spin of the dice. And what do we say? We're going to name the holiday Purim. Even in something that's random, we're going to say we're going to find God in this. Or something that appears to be just regular. It's nature. It's it's the normal course of events. Even such a thing, we're looking for the ultimate controller of our fate. And that, of course, is God. And that's the idea, is that, that, that there is a something beneath the veneer in the world around us. That God is really involved in, in our lives. And we have to try to find that. And by the way, the Jewish tradition to get dressed up on, on, on Purim, like to wear a mask, 
what what does that imply? That, that there's something beneath the surface. And someone is dressed up, they're disguised, they're masquerading as X, but really they're Y. And thus the story is masquerading, the story itself is masquerading as just a wonderful coincidence. It's the story itself is dressed up as something which is which is not. We have to work hard to try to find pull pull away the mask to find out what is hiding beneath it. That's and that's one of the major themes of the holiday. Uh, another theme: the Talmud tells us that on Purim, the Jewish people reaccepted the Torah out of love. So actually, I spoke about this um, last week in a different podcast on the Parsha podcast. You can check it out at great length of what we said about that. But the Talmud says is that there's two acceptances of Torah. At Sinai, the Jewish people accepted the Torah out of fear of God. They were totally bamboozled by God. They couldn't say no. During Purim, the Jewish people accepted the Torah, reaccepted the Torah out of love of God. They were so enthralled by the miracle that they had to, they were just consumed with love of God and they had to do, they had to reaccept the Torah. What does that mean? What that means is, is that in our life, if we say we're waiting for a revealed miracle, what we're actually saying is we want to be fearful of God. However, even deeper than the relationship of fear that we can have with with the Almighty is a relationship of love. And how is the relationship of love fostered? How do you engender love between two entities, in this case, in the Jewish people and God, by finding not the things that are out of the ordinary, but finds the things that are specifically in the ordinary, things that are ordinary and finding God's hand involved in our lives in, 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 in hidden ways. And I made the suggestion before, but even with relationships, you know, people think that it is the big gift, so to speak, that foster a close relationship between, let's say, spouses. The truth is, no, it's the little things. All those little things that are in the normal course of behavior that really deepen and develop the relationship. Another idea that we say. Now, even the mitzvahs, what are the mitzvahs of the day? So we read the Megillah. What's the idea? It's not just to read the story. It's to, it's to think about the story. It's to, to dwell upon the story. To try to find, again, revealing the hidden, finding God's hand. That's about love of God. We give gifts to poor people and we give gifts to our Friends and neighbors. Well, what's that? That's about loving people, other people. It's about fostering relationships of love with our acquaintances and our friends. And then there we have a lot, we're supposed to have a very lavish meal. Well, who loves that? That's loving your body. Many Jewish holidays are about the soul and even about eschewing the body. And here we say, no, 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 this is love for everyone. And we love the body. But you know who's not loved? There's one person that's not loved. And that's the wicked one. That's the Russia. So you know what we do? We get drunk on Purim. And the Talmud says you have to get drunk until you don't know the difference between Haman is cursed and Mordecai is blessed. Haman, who's the wicked one? How do we love him? We have to get so drunk that we don't we forget that he's such a sinner. And that he's so wicked. And by doing that we're able to love even him as well. Another theme of the holiday is the eradication of Amalek. We read this past Shabbos, and we um, it's the, this Shabbos is called Shabbos Parshas Zachar, to remember. There is a text that we read that tells us to remember what, what Amalek did 
when we left Egypt, they tried to kill us, and we have to try to kill them first before they kill us. There's this question of if you could tra- time travel, what would everyone do? You go back and kill Hitler. What if he's a little innocent, a cute baby in, uh, in a cradle? You kill him as well, right? Uh, maybe that's a moral dilemma for a different day. But there is this certainly an idea that there's some evil that's so inherent and it's, it's, it's so dangerous that you have to stop it at all costs. The Torah tells us that there's a nation called Amalek and this nation is, they're all baby Hitlers, whether they know it or not, or they behave like that or, or not. King Saul was told to kill all of Amalek and he made a, a blunder that cost him his kingdom by not killing the king, whose name was Agag, and not killing the animals. Right? The prophet told him, destroy everything of, of Amalek, even, even their property. And he left the animals alive, and he left the king alive. And that kept the spark of Amalek alive, and their descendant is Haman. And they still live amongst us, to a certain degree, thanks to that decision, which is why the prophet Samuel goes over to Saul and tells him, because of this, God removed himself from you. You're no longer the king. And he went and found a replacement. That's King David. So we are commanded of the Torah to never forget what the Amalites did to us and to try to do everything we can to destroy them. Technically, there would be a mitzvah. If you knew for sure that someone was Amalite, be mitzvah to kill them. Even if they're not guilty of any tr- crime per se. Now, of course, if you're going to imperil yourself, if you're going to be imprisoned and going to be put on death row because of killing someone... Like, there's no mitzvahs that you have to do that would cause yourself to be, to be, uh, tried for murder. But if you could do it discreetly, maybe that's the way to go about it. <laughs> now, uh, so this holiday Purim is a celebration of eradication of a certain degree of weakening of Amalek. And whenever, when we see that these two realities cannot coexist, the Jewish nation, in their splendor, and Amalek in their wickedness. They cannot coexist. And thus, the more power that is a, that, that is accorded to Amalek, the weaker we are. And the stronger we are, by definition, the weaker they are. They're a perfect counterweight to we are, to wherever we are. And therefore, what do we see? We see that the mitzvos of the day, they are reflective of a nation that is really reaching its, its destiny. Like, what do we do? We do kindness. We, we read about the Mandela. We try to immerse ourselves in, in faith. We give charity. All the things that really represent our nation in, in, in our true form, we revisit them on this holiday because this is the holiday that really connects the, uh, the humbling of Amalek and therefore the concomitant raising of us as a nation in our true self. And even perhaps we could say that we're, we're supposed to drink on Purim to not, to forget that Haman's the wicked one. Now, of course, Haman and the idea of Amalek still exists. Of course. But in our little world on Purim, he doesn't exist because we're trying to eradicate evil. And therefore, even if it's only in our mind alone, there's a certain measure of getting rid of evil by not remembering that Haman is the bad one. I want to end off with one uh, very famous teaching. That's brought down from the Arizal, from Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Kabbalist of the 16th century in Svat. He says something really fascinating. The name of Yom Kippur, the full name of Yom Kippur, is Yom Kippurim. Which, if you read it literally, it means the day that's like Purim. 
And he said is that Yom Kippur is light Purim. It's almost as great as Yom Kippur, as, as Purim. It's a light, light Purim. So what that means, of course, is, is, is a, that's kind of hard to think because we can't think of any more polarized opposites than Purim and Yom Kippur. Like one day is a day of fasting and a day of serious introspection. And one is a day of joy and celebration and feasting and interaction with people, whereas an Yom Kippur's interaction with God. So this is a very deep insight, is that there's really two paths for us to connect to God. There's the serious path that we do in Yom Kippur, fasting, praying, right, eschewing our body. That's one path. But there's even a deeper path that we could connect to God through Purim itself, which is living as a human with the body and engaging with the body and doing that in a way that brings us close to God. And the hope is that uh, we find a certain measure of this I, of this ideal and these ideals on Purim, and we celebrate it, and we deepen our connection to our fellow man, our connection to our Creator, and we remember the great miracles that He did for us uh, many years past, and continues to do hidden miracles every day.